you had to ask yourself, what would be the biggest influence that your parents had on you, I wonder what you would say that it would be. If you had to trouble yourself to think through that thought just for a second, what would be the greatest influence that they had? And I guess for, for lots of us, there'd be different answers to that question. Some would come to mind really quickly, and there'd be a really obvious other answer as to what the influence was. For others of us, there'd probably be a, you know, one or two things ringing through your mind. For, for others still, it might not, be a, might not be a positive thing. It might be a bad thing. It's incredible, though, I think, and it's probably worth acknowledging um, in light of today's service, the role that you have as parents over your children. I wonder if you could pop that text up just to keep it up on the screen as we go through. We're going to base the talk on this advice that God gives. Um, well-known passage in the Bible, if you're familiar with the Bible. I don't know if any of you have seen the film Finding Nemo. Oh, that's good. Sometimes you say stuff like that, and everyone goes, what? I've had that before. When I mentioned Gladiator once in another church, and everyone just looked at me completely blankly. Find, finding Nemo. Joe and Holly, Finding Nemo. It's coming, mate. It's coming. I'm telling you. Like, like a bunch of other stuff that you are not exposed to right now, the world of children's animation is going to hit you like a brick wall. You may as well just put it on loop on your TV screen right now. Finding Nemo. Brilliant film. And uh, I'll, I'll give you the premise of it right now. It's a story about a, f- a family of clownfish. Hello, somebody just come in. A family of clownfish. And you're thinking immediately, right, okay, where we're headed with this story. But the family of clownfish are faced with an immediate tragedy. A predator comes in, and if you're younger or if you've seen the film, you know what happens, and attacks this family of clownfish and kills. It's brilliant. Some of you are looking at me genuinely excited as to see where we're going to head. Attacks this clownfish family and kills, I think, about 100 baby clownfish and the mum. And you're left with Marvin the dad and Nemo the baby. And after this tragic beginning, you see the story develop of an overprotective clown fish dad and his son. And the rest of the story is built upon this relationship where Marvin, the parent, puts a bunch of perimeters. He demonstrates a certain kind of parenting. And that's probably one of the things I want us to think about, how we demonstrate our parenting. He demonstrates his parenting in that he doesn't want Nemo to experience anything. And then the film gets worse, and I can see you're still hooked on the film because Nemo does push these boundaries, and he gets whisked away by an enigmatic diver, and he is shot off to Australia, and the rest of the film is about Nemo being found by his dad, and you're thinking to yourselves, why is Ash spending two or three minutes telling us this story about Nemo? It's because Disney and Pixar are really clever with this stuff. They don't just make films for kids. They make films knowing that the parents are going to be watching, and we all have empathy with this situation because we all know what it's like. As parents, we know what it's like, and I guess as people, we know what it's like as well to have the responsibility of preparing people for the world. I don't know if you realize this yet, Joe and Holly, and other young parents out there, but you are occupying the roles right now of, without wanting to be blasphemous, demigods. Your babies see the world very much through the filter that you choose for them. If it's raining too much, you just get to cover Martha over with a bit of a sheet. If it's too sunny, you get to cover her with shade. You will be the people that will... 
influence her moral fiber, who will give her a grasp of what morality is. Martha, this is what's wrong. This is what's right. This is massive stuff. You kind of build the foundations for her life. And I guess one of the traumas of being a parent is, and one of the things you realize is that you get to build the foundations. You get to invest in this incredible way, but you've got no control, no guarantees about where your kids will go or where your kids will end up because this is a temporary assignment. The this, this sphere of influence that you've got, I guess, as your children are younger, I guess it never goes away in some respects, but there are a, there's a window of a few years where you are the filter for the world in terms of what your kids see. And I'm just experiencing the other side of that just right now at the moment. My kids are getting a bit older and it's really horrible. Do you know what's happening? They're starting to see through me. They realize that all these stories that I tell are just as likely to be a fraudulent story as a true story. They see that, they see that I lose my temper. They see, that, they see that occasionally I'm unjust. And you go from this person initially at birth, and I don't know if you had this, Joe, you hold the baby in your arms, you've got no skills to offer at all, and you quickly develop a skill set. And then you come to a day not that far down the line when this skill set is no longer needed. You go from zero to hero and back down to somewhere near zero again. One of the things you get to realize is, as parents, we have limits to what we can do. There will be a time in Martha's life and the other children's lives when they're going to cross the road and there's nothing you can do about whether they'll be all right or not in that moment. There'll be times when Martha will listen to a punk band and there's nothing you can do right now. And, you, and right now you might be thinking, that's a good thing. I want Martha to be exposed to punk music. But you've got no idea how you're going to feel in a few years about what they say. Martha can listen to a, lef, a liberal lefty blog and there's nothing we can do about it. There are limits. And I guess in the film Finding Nemo, we see what that's like. We see what it's like to be faced with the limits of your parenting. It's why it's a clever film because lots of us as parents can go, yeah, I know what it's like. I know what it means. I know what the limits are. And it's scary. And the question that it forces you to ask yourself as a parent, maybe even as a Christian or as a citizen of the world is, how will we demonstrate good values to our kids? How will we demonstrate as Christians good values to other people? What are the important things that we need to demonstrate? In the story of Finding Nemo, one of the big things, one of the big problems is Nemo has got this keen need for dependence on his father, and his father's going to need to demonstrate what it means to be independent. What are we demonstrating to our kids? One of the cruelest parts about this is that we don't get to pick when our kids watch us behind those gorgeous blue eyes of Martha, what you'll find is that she's watching all the time. And as Christians, we say that shame, same burden. We don't get to pick and choose the times that people watch us and judge us and make assessments of us. The world watches all the time how we act. The Bible gives us some really good instructions about the kind of things that we should do. There is a, a family in the Old Testament that are about to settle down and God gives them some really good instructions. They're about to settle down in the promised land. You might have heard of this family. It's called Israel. God looks down at them. He sees the way that they've mucked up in the past. He sees that they're about to enter a new season in their life. He sees that they're about to settle down 
in the promised land and he says, you need to hear some advice. You need to hear this. So God intervenes. Hear, O Israel. Um, of all the people that start off a sentence, hear, and you're going to listen. If God says, hear, this is God speaking. If God says, hear, I think you're going to listen. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them down on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Maybe you've heard those verses before. Maybe you're looking at me now like, I don't really know uh, what that means. If you go to the home of an Orthodox Jew right now, you'll find that they follow these commands very literally. They'll have verses of Scripture on their little boxes around their heads, and they'll have little verses of Scripture on their doors as well. We're not under that same obligation, under that same command, but these principles are so good they are to be listened to, taken on board. I think God says two things to us. I think God says two things to Israel at this moment. He's saying, number one, we've got to fully realize the extent of God's love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. We've got to fully grasp who God is. I guess as I try to deal with this, as I try to make it real for me, as I try to think about it for you as well, that question's been thrown at me quite a lot. Do you really know who God is? And as somebody who's been a Christian for ages, do I really know who God is? And probably more to the point, I want you to think about this for yourself. Am I bothered? If somebody were to throw that question as you, if you, if you were to say right now, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I, I'm a believer, that's, what, that's the terminology we use, isn't it? And somebody would say to you, do you really know God? Would it trouble you if your answer was, I know him a bit. I want us to look at this. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to love God? What is God saying here with this? Secondly, and it's the very literal commands, aren't they? God asks us to demonstrate that he is the most important thing. These two things. There are two points they're the take-home points of the sermon. One, do we know what God's love is? Do we know God? And what does it mean to demonstrate those things in our lives? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It looks, doesn't it, like God is asking more of us. It's a command, isn't it? I want you to love me more. But we know a little about, bit about love, don't we? We know that that's not really how love works, is it? If somebody says to you, you need to love me more, that's not really how it works. You can't just decide to love somebody more. That's not how the mechanism works. And I guess you can read this as a command, but it's also a statement about the way God sees our relationship. Love the Lord your God. This is God speaking. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He's making a demand on us in one sense, but in another sense, what he's saying is, here's how the actual picture is. Here's what it actually looks like. There is a relationship going on here between God 
and man. It is a deeply committed relationship. And if you take time to read through the history of Israel, you'll realize the way in which God has shown his love. God has just rescued this people from Egypt. God's saying to, saying to these people, from my end of things, I have shown you incredible, audacious amounts of love, copious amounts of love. Your responsibility is to love me back. And you can think of it as a command if you want, but the truth of it is it's just the reality of the situation. I don't know if you've ever had a phone call that's gone something like this. Have you ever heard, have you ever earwigged on two people that are absolutely in love and they're, they're on the phone to each other and uh, the guy is on the phone at one end and guys do, you know, guys do do this. I've, I've, I don't think my wife's in. I can say what I like. But this, this, me and Jude were in this place for a little while where we would talk openly on the phone about how much we loved each other. She used to live in Glasgow and this was, you know, formed part of our relationship. And so I would be on the other end saying, yeah, I, uh, I and I'm going to, you know, going to be quite honest, leave myself a bit vulnerable here. I would be like, yeah, I, I love you. And when I, when I think about you, this is a phone, by the way, phones. <laughs> this was before mobiles. I really love you. And when, when I think about you, you know, my, my knees go weak. When I look into your eyes, because my lines weren't great, but I thought, I've, all I've got is the phone, so I'm going to need to have lines. And I would be saying stuff like, yeah, and when I think about you, I really want to spend the rest of my life with you. And I would say stuff like this, and then Jude would be on the other end, and she had, she had good lines, and she had lots to say on the phone, and she would be coming back, yeah, I know, it's, I'm so in love with you. It's been ages since, do you ever say this? It's been ages, I wouldn't, we don't say this anymore. It's been ages since I've seen you. Really miss you. Oh, I, you know, I do love you. I think your hair's awesome. She used to say things like that. And then I'd, I'd come back to her with more of my story on the other side. And then what would happen often, particularly in my house, either my mates would come around, and this has maybe happened to you as well, or my dad would walk in and stand next to me on the phone. And what's happening here is Jude's still giving it, yeah, which, you know, we're meant to be together, and I'm just, I've been writing a poem for you, and you mean the world to me. And what, what happens at the other end is you start going, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, yeah, interesting, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to work on that. That's really good. Okay. And what happens then on the other end is you just change tack completely. And you cannot leave it like that, can you? You cannot leave it like that. If that is going to be a relationship, you can't just end that phone call with, all right, see you later, bye. You're going to have to ring her back, aren't you? Or she's going to ring you back and say, I thought our relationship was about love. I thought we were madly in love with each other. What is this? Yeah, we'll sort it all out later. An organized talk. What is all that about? Because a relationship has to be, has to have some sense of equality. And God says to us, I have loved you with an everlasting love, with a crazy, ridiculous amount of love. And what needs to happen back, you can think of it as a command if you want, but the only logical way you can respond to that love, if you've got it, is to love me with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And I think, as a way to read the Bible, think of the Bible like this. God's showing us. God says, I mean, there's lots of different ways you could break the Bible up, lots of ways you could describe it, but think of it like this. It's God saying to us, I love you. Do you get it? I love you. Do you get it? Think about creation. And part of me, when I think about stuff like this, I think, yeah, I think humanity really has got a very close sense of what it means to understand God's love. Think about it. What do we do when we look at the stars? We don't say that we look at the stars, do we? 
How do we view the stars? We gaze at them. Everybody gazes at the stars, and what we do is we gaze at them and we just wonder. We look up and wonder. What about when we look at a mountain? Why on earth is a mountain attractive? Why is it an attractive thing? If you look at it, I guess, through an atheist's eyes, it's just a big lump of earth that makes getting from A to B harder, either more exhausting because you've got to climb over it or more petrol because you've got to go around it. But we look at mountains and we say, this is beautiful. This is stunning. Why do we look at creation and see something that is stunning and something that is beautiful? What we do with it, we show, I think, in our humanity lots of ways in which we nearly get it. We nearly get what it's like to have a relationship with God. We climb it. We take a photograph of it. We want to camp near it. We have fond memories of it. But imagine this. Imagine if you can look at that mountain and see that mountain, as the Bible would describe it, as displaying God's glory. God saying with this mountain that we already think is quite awesome. I love you, by the way. I know that sounds a bit soppy, but I've said other soppy stuff, so I don't mind talking about God in that way. Imagine you could clamber up a mountain and not just get to the top and think, wow, I'm awesome. Imagine you get to the top of that mountain and you think, man, God is unbelievable. God is awesome. Look at his glory. If you can do that, I think you're starting to make sense of the world as God sees it. Maybe we look at God's law. We get a big book like the Bible and we open it up and we see the stories about, about from the Old Testament about, about what it means to keep God's rules. We might even read some of the stuff that Jesus says when he explains the law and we think this is, we probably give it two or three minutes of our time. And I guess even as Christians we do this, don't we? We get into books like Leviticus and we think, oh, I'm not reading this. This is too long and it's too boring. But if we start to see God's word, God's law, not as just a bunch of rules in which he's wanting to keep us penned in, but if we start to see that as God's love been displayed, if we start to see that as God wanting to liberate us, not just keep us penned in, but give us some parameters to stop us falling off the edge of the cliff, then we start to understand who God is. David said about creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. He talked about the law. He said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. David, I guess the poet of the Bible, really got what it meant to understand who God was. Think about the cross. Maybe you've never thought about the cross. Maybe you've never thought about that story in the Bible of the cross. If you, you could maybe see that as, as the Romans quelling a rebellion. You could see it maybe as a tragic tale of the death of what might well have been a good man. But if you, and try and remember the story, either when you've read it or the film that Mel, Mel Gibson did, if you think of that story as a display of love, it's almost impossible to walk away, to be the guy on the other end of the phone, so to speak, and just say, yeah, right, I love you too. If you look at that story of the cross and you receive that and you understand that story in the Bible as God displaying his love, you've really got to respond with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. What does it mean to love God? To love God is to know who he is. A challenge for us, I think, 
when we think about how we live our lives, what we prioritize, what we demonstrate. Back to Nemo, just for the last couple of minutes of the talk. Nemo's big, big journey, his big decision, was that he was, he was going to need to get past dependence on his dad. His dad needed to demonstrate his need for independence. And what, what this story does really is pick up on the narrative of the world, doesn't it? One of the big lessons that, we, that we're taught to teach our children is that they need to have independence. And I guess we go on this journey, you go on the journey as a parent where you are all this child needs, and then you realize actually this sort of season needs to come to an end and I need to teach this child how to look after himself. And what, ne- what the story of Finding Nemo does is pick up on that and kind of expose that and dig around at that. And, and, and the wisdom that comes out of Finding Nemo is that you need to learn independence. And it's one of the big narratives of the world. If you believe in yourself, you can do anything. Have you heard phrases like that? If you trust in yourself, if you really believe in yourself, one of the big problems, I think, for us as Christians is that we have to think about what kind of love that we demonstrate to our children. What are we showing our children? The wisdom of the world says, demonstrate independence. I think it's a good wisdom. Um, I'm running through the battle at the moment with my children where I'm realizing they need to learn to look after themselves. And I'm saying it almost with aggression. I know it's, it's important wisdom. Children need to learn independence. But there are times the Bible would say that the wisdom of the world comes up short. The wisdom of the world is actually insufficient. It says this in 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I think if you were to look across the pond just now at America and see the two candidates that American citizens projected, you would... And I think Americans are perhaps beginning to realize this now. They're, they're probably scratching their heads and saying, we could use another kind of wisdom. You've got, I guess, Hillary, who is a, seems to be like an awesome politician, career politician. You've got Mr. Trump, who seems to be able to get everything done. Two sort of evidences of the world's wisdom. But I think you would really scratch your head and say, the world could really do with an American who was good, who had integrity. I think there are times when the world's wisdom comes up short. There was a time in my life, again, I've got the habit of being a bit over-personal, I'm sorry about that, but it's true. About five years ago, had, had a health scare. Had a bit of a health scare. Um, and there was that period of time where there was tests happening, and uh, there was a, two weeks of my life where I was, I was pathetic, and I was just a wreck. And I remember in that time ringing up my old man, my dad, and I guess to bring it back to the narrative of the, of the talk, what I was doing was I'd experienced independence and I realized that that was coming unstuck because I thought there was something very seriously wrong with me. And I rang up my dad and I was looking for him to say, everything's going to be okay, son. You're going to be all right. And it was one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had in my life because we didn't know that everything was going to be okay. The tests were pretty serious and my dad said to me on the other end of the phone, well, I see what you're saying, but my advice to you is, son, you're going to need to steal yourself. 
What I did when I was in your position a few years ago was I read through the whole book of the Psalms. And what I realized that what my dad did to me in that moment was cause me to not be dependent on myself, to not be dependent on him, but to show me dependence on God. One of the big lessons for us, I think, as Christian parents or as Christians, if we're going to be an effective witness, if we're going to be obedient to God, if we're going to understand his word, is that our responsibility is to show the world, to demonstrate to the world, not that we believe in ourselves to achieve great things, but that we trust God to achieve great things. The passage goes on to say, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And I guess you could look at that command in a literal sense, but as we said at the start, I think the way that we interpret that now is to see the principles that are in there. What is God saying to his people in this new season of their lives? He's saying, I want your homes to be shaped by a godly culture. I want that to be the thing that influences more than anything else. When we think about how we respond as his church, what should we do? The pattern I so often fall into when I try and be macho or I try and be the guy is that I demonstrate that I can handle this. I've got the skill set. I can deal with the problems. I can deal with this on my own. And God asks us to demonstrate to the world that we think more importantly than we can handle it, that God can handle it. He says to us, trust me, need me, depend on me, make me part of your conversation. Learn me well enough so I am the answer to your problems. Let me be the main flavor in your life and in your home. God says to his children, Israel, as they're about to enter the promised land, remember, listen, I'm the one who's in control. Remember, we have a deep, loving relationship with each other. Remember to show your children how much I mean to you. I'm aware there that it got a bit serious at the end of the talk. Whenever I read that passage, I just think it just speaks so clearly about how important it is for us as human beings, not as Christians, not even as parents, but as people who inhabit the earth, to ask ourselves the question, the God question. Do I know God? Am I bothered that I don't? And if the answer is that I'm interested, if the answer is actually that, no, I do believe that there's a God, that we need to, as a logical response, not as subservient creatures, but as evidence of a relationship that's going on, to love him with all our hearts, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And as we do this, we begin to demonstrate his love to the world.